0: The day after the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade came down, I put out a post that essentially said, humility is the way forward and don't gloat. It's amazing how many people misunderstood that to wonder whether or not I was actually happy that this actually happened. And I want to replay the last broadcast that I recorded. This was recorded the day after the decision happened. And it's really important to understand how to keep a victory. Getting a victory is one thing. Keeping it is entirely another Humility is absolutely the way forward. And listen, nobody's rejoicing more than Tracy and I are at this victory. But you got to know how to keep it, right? One more time. Here we go. Good morning and welcome to the broadcast of Faith Mountain Ministries. Well, I rejoice with many of you today as we watch the Supreme Court decision strike down Roe v. Wade after 50 years. I've been waiting for my whole life for this moment. Tracy and I have been activists for The Unborn for a long, long time. Back in in Austin, Texas, Tracy worked for an adoption foster care agency and worked together with dozens and dozens of churches, putting on presentations to connect children who need homes with families who would like to care for them in fostering or adoption. And she was pleased to watch literally hundreds of families be created out of that system. In that time, I discovered there's over 400,000 children in the fostering system, and there's over 300,000 churches in this country. And if not even two families from every church would adopt a child out of the fostering system, we could literally empty the fostering system out via the body of Christ in literally one year. And imagine the amount of impact that it would make if those families that would do the adoption were godly families that would actually take those children in It would teach them in the ways of the Lord, connect them to the heart of God, get get them into a relationship with Jesus Christ and filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. What an incredible, incredible impact that could make upon this nation. That's a lot of people. And yet, so far that hasn't happened. Now, I will say Christians give more uh, money-wise, time-wise, energy-wise to these issues and causes than just about any group on earth. In addition to that, back in the early 90s, along with a young lady named Jen Collins and a pastor named Kim Haggard. We put together a program called LifeGuard. We worked with crisis pregnancy centers in Austin, Texas, and would go into public schools kind of as a as sort of a parallel to P- Planned Parenthood, and we would talk about healthy choices, abstinence education, family, marriage, all of those things that encompass a pro-life uh, stance. And we'd go in and talk to 17,000. Personally, I would talk to 17,000 students a year in Central Texas. Even to this day, when I go to Austin, I still get approached by people who say, I remember when you... We came to my school. And uh, it, it, the testimony to the impact is is lasting. And uh, I, I'm so grateful for the time spent in that field. Spent about 20 years just sowing into and uh, uh, pouring into that whole field. We stood, marches, held signs, did all the things. And then a day like this comes and you think to yourself, wow, this is the victory. And, and here's, the, here's the heart posture that I want to just encourage you to today. And that is humility. To walk in humility. This is a sober and humbling moment. I mean, it's the same humility that brought you to your knees, perhaps in prayer, to see something like this happen. It's the same humility that brings the victory about that will be the humility that keeps the victory. There's something about this moment that we need to learn how to walk in humility in because I guarantee you, anytime we gloat or introduce pride or arrogance into anything, we've doomed it to failure. As a matter of fact, one of the quickest ways to lose a victory is to begin to walk in pride at the victory that you've just obtained pride will cause any victory to become short-lived. Uh, there's no such thing as Christian pride. We don't boast in anything but Christ. The reality is that when you and I introduce arrogance, pride, gloating into any kind of victory or move or step forward, uh, we, we find ourselves in a very dangerous position, right? It's important that we rejoice, but let your rejoicing be done with humility, this has nothing to do with, I don't want to offend the other side, it has nothing to do with how other people feel, but it does have a lot to do with walking in such a posture where when the protests are done, everything is stripped away, does love remain as the core value of our heart? Does love for people remain as the core value of our heart? If that continues, then we won't alienate the very people that we're actually called to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is really an important uh, day for us here in the United States of America. And I again, I rejoice with you. I rejoice along with many, many churches this weekend who are going to be talking about, uh, referencing, and, and, and going over the history of what we've done as a country. You know, for many, many years, people thought slavery was fine. And then once it was made illegal once a court of law actually struck down uh, uh, the ability for us to actually do this or exercise that uh, that option in this country, give it a few generations, and now you'll be hard-pressed to find anybody who thinks slavery is okay. What's happened? It's not that we legislated morality. It's that the, the heart, the will of, of people who saw the value for life— took over in a sense and the courts came into agreement with it and generations to come start aligning with the reality that this is genuinely a bad idea. Slavery is a bad idea. In the same way, taking the life of a child in the womb, bad idea. Okay? So, I think it's going to take a couple of generations and there's going to be a lot of fighting, there'll be a lot of uh, of debates back and forth, but I encourage you walk in radical humility and this is why I say this so strongly. If we don't learn how to walk humbly in this moment, we could lose a win. We've been fighting five decades to achieve. I want to take you to the book of Micah today. Micah chapter 6 says this, in verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Stop for just a second. Everybody wants to know this, right? What exactly does God want? What is the will of God for my life? Matthew 10 bears this out. Jesus says, uh, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. And as you go, preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Preach the kingdom of God. So we know the assignment that that we have for our life. And that is to live out the declaration of the message of the kingdom of God, not not just in word, but in deed. Because there's power behind this thing. As one of my favorite authors, Bill Johnson, says, without the power of God, the message of the kingdom of God is not really good news. And it's true. The message of the kingdom is just an idea unless the power of God goes forth to save and deliver and to heal. When people are in painful and difficult circumstances, we need to know that we have more than just words and ideas to give to them. We need to know that we actually have the tangible resurrecting power of Jesus Christ living within us to bring healing to broken bodies and hope to broken lives and hearts. Now, right before verse 8, Micah here uh there's been a question that's been asked. Micah says, With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings or yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What Micah's doing here is he's challenging the, the constant ritualization of the religious spirit's desire to pull us out of relationship and into simply just doing things to try to appease God. What happens if you don't have to appease God anymore? What happens if God is not disappointed with you and perpetually pleased with you? What would happen to your religion? You say, well, it wouldn't change my religion at all. Wouldn't change my faith at all because I, I live loved by God and my entire life of holiness is born out of love by God. And for God, I see how much he loves me and I love him back in return. That would be amazing. But I can tell you from conversations with many, many believers, many Christians, a lot of people don't feel that way. If I said, if you'd believe that you didn't have to do anything to to get God's favor for the rest of your life, what would it change about you? Oh my goodness. Suddenly their, their wheels start spinning because so much of our Christian life is to get us to try to be right with God. That was accomplished in Jesus. You don't have to offer 10,000 rivers of oil or 10,000 sacrifices to God. That's done in Christ. And so what God is about to give Micah is what Jesus would bring a short, a short while later. You know, when, when uh, people ask him, what's the greatest commandment out of all the 613 commandments? What's the greatest? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love others. This is the message of Jesus Christ to boil everything down to these two simple commandments that are absolutely based upon this thing of love. Can I tell you, you preach love, you'll be called all kinds of names. You'll be called soft. You'll be called a pacifist. You'll be called uh, uh, all kinds of things from people within the church. I know. I feel this a lot. And I get this a lot. You preach judgment, you'll get a lot of applause and you'll get a lot more likes. But if you consistently will not compromise on preaching the grace of God, everything will boil back down to these two commandments, a love for God and a love for people. You won't give people permission to become your enemy. You'll suddenly start to realize how Jesus empowers you with his Holy Spirit to literally love your enemies, not with an agenda to try to change their mind, but to put the heavenly father on display through your heart. That The father's heart that can be put on display through you to this world. It requires love. And in the absence of love, we'll grab a hold of activism of some kind and we'll rally troops around us, creating enemies, creating divisions and creating sides. We'll go to war with our words against people that Jesus died for and we'll call it holy. And this is, listen, the crusades are still happening. They're still happening even today. Today. They just happen through words. They happen online. We lob uh, grenades and bombs at people from a distance. But, you know, the reality is when it all came down to it, people asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God and love others, love people. Well, who is my neighbor, people said, the people that agree with me. No. Oftentimes, the person that you are called to love the most is the person that you will find hardest to love. You will have to tap into the Holy Spirit's power in order for the love of God to be able to flow through you, to impact the world around you. This is what God tells Micah is required. It says, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This would be an example of how Jesus lived. It's an Old Testament revelation of a new covenant life posture. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. The the posture of our walk before God will be the posture of our walk before men. Over the course of the next verses in this chapter of Micah chapter 6, there's a lot spoken of how we live, and much of it is tied to our talk. In verse 9, it says, The voice of the Lord will call to the city. It is a sound wisdom to fear your name. If you go on down to verse 12, it says, For the rich men of the city are full of violence, and a resident speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. So it pictures a world here filled with violence, lies, and deceit. We could say that's much like our world today. And notice, these are things not that God is doing. These are things that we have chosen with our own free will. We have chosen to introduce violence, lying, and deceit into our world. And we end up in our violence, lying, and deceit. We end up bringing evil into our world. We do this to ourselves. God isn't bringing this to us. We do this to ourselves. It's been said we we we're punished by our sins, not just for our sins, but by our sins. And I believe that's absolutely true. If you go on down to verse uh, uh, 6, let's go to the end of verse 5 in chapter 7. It says in verse 9 of chapter 6, I want to tie two things together here. It says, the voice of the Lord will call to the city. What does the Lord call out to the city? Well, the answer is in chapter 7. Verse 5, guard your lips. Goes on to say in verse 6, for the son treats a father contemptuously. A daughter rises up against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. Now listen, before I go on here, does this describe the world we're living in today? A world of division where Jesus prayed in John 17 that we would be one. And yet we see a world filled with strife, filled with division, filled with division between people made in the image and likeness of God, people who stand on two sides of an issue with completely different perspectives. And yet we we are called literally to be one. It doesn't, again, it doesn't mean that we agree with one another. I just need to pull this back to, to this again. Unity is not agreement. Unity is when you are willing to lay your life down for someone who doesn't agree with you. That's authentic love. Let me say this again. Unity is not found in agreement. Unity is not achieved by arguing somebody else into your opinion. Unity is found when you find somebody of a differing opinion than you. And yet, you, even though you may be angry at their perspective, you're still willing to lay your life down for them. Why? Because they're made in the image and likeness of God. In Acts chapter 10, as we talked about in the past couple of weeks, Peter said, I've discovered what God has showed me is I'm not allowed to call any man unholy or unclean. This was the ramifications of what the cross of Christ did for humanity, bringing about a new and living way called the new covenant, changing the terms of of our engagement with God. To the point where now the posture, the heart posture of a Christian must be to look at humanity and see holy and clean and regard them as if Jesus Christ was standing right before them, no matter what they look like, no matter what they sound like, no matter what words they're saying, no matter what their lifestyle is. When you look at a person, can you see Christ as all and in all? Can you see Christ right there and regard them as if Christ were standing right before you? If you can do that, then authentic love, you have genuine love for Christ, love for Jesus Christ, then that authentic love will leak out from every part of you in authentic honor toward a person, walking in humility toward that person as if Christ was standing right there. You say, Bill, that's, that's crazy. Why would I do something like that for somebody who stands for completely different political ideology? Why would I do this, something like that for somebody who stands for a completely different set of values? You remember when Jesus talked about the separation of the sheep and the goats, and he talks about them in terms of nations. And he said that the it, it, when it's all said and done, the sheep will stand up and say, I'm sorry, when did we get it right? Because he'll say, you know, when you came and visited me in prison, when I was sick and you visited me, when I was, and he identifies himself with people that you would never think Jesus would be identified with. Well, people in prison, that they're, they're people who have committed criminal acts, right? And Jesus identifies himself with those people. People who are sick, who have disease. Well, there's no sickness in Jesus. How is he identified with those? But Jesus identifies himself with those people. To Paul, on the road to Damascus, Jesus identified himself with the persecuted church. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul was actually going around imprisoning, killing, torturing Christians. He wasn't doing anything personally to Jesus. It was those people. And Jesus says, no, you're persecuting me. Listen, anytime you f- you, you find people maligned, anytime you find people uh, 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 imprisoned, anytime you find people impoverished or sick or diseased or hurting in any way, anytime you find those people, you will find Christ sitting with them. You say, well, haven't some of those people brought that on themselves? Sure. But listen, the only time that we condemn or curse ourselves is because we believe something wrong, we, we have a belief system where we have called something that is actually a lie to be truth. That's why Jesus said in John 3, he said, if you don't believe in the son, you're condemned already because you haven't believed in the son. In other words, if you don't think what the son has done is enough to save you or you don't align yourself with the way, the truth and the life of Jesus Christ, then you're believing a lie. And the result of believing a lie will be a self-inflicted condemnation. It's not God that's condemning you. It's our own free will to believe something that's actually not true. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, then suddenly we come aligned with the truth that sets us free. And who the Son sets free is free indeed. So then why would Jesus align himself with a prisoner, a person who committed a crime? perhaps because the only reason that person committed the crime is because a person didn't know who they were, because they didn't know who Jesus is. And when they discover who Jesus is, then they stop believing lies about themselves too, and the criminal activity ceases. What does Jesus do with his life? He engages with people who were so different from the religious system and yet brings them into alignment with the truth of their identity so that they know they're absolutely seen. This is the power of what Christ has given us the ability to do in the new covenant. What did the Pharisees do in the religious system? They held tight to the standard of 1300 years of religious tradition, the law that God had given them, believing they had a corner market on defending the integrity of the word of the Lord. And yet Jesus, who is the literal word of God, says something different than the word that they're defending. And now they have a choice. Am I going to stick with my tradition or am I going to stick with what this guy says? And ultimately, they chose to kill Jesus to defend their tradition. Or you could say it like this. They killed God to defend their concept of God. They were so ingrained in this idea that I'm holding on to the defense of this as truth, not knowing that that truth was actually a lie. This is why we do justly love mercy and walk humbly with God. When we cut out the mercy and the humility and all we look at is justice, then we will operate by principle rather than presence. When we operate by principles over presence, we'll find ourselves very shortly out of alignment with the heart, the mind, the will of God. Believe it or not, you can hang on to a value to the point where you ride that value into a place where you use the very value that you're defending to bring condemnation to people, or to to actually oppress people. And this is what the Pharisees and the religious leaders were doing. They had used the law, started using the law to oppress the very people that they were called to connect back to the heart of the Father through the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system was never meant to be an ongoing religious ritual. It was simply meant to be a way for people to be severed from their sin and reconciled back to the Father but it ended up becoming a means by which a person would buy or sell in in the trading floor of sin and grace. We go out and sin willfully, and then we sacrifice willfully so that we can receive the grace that comes because of the law, so then we can go out and sin willfully again. It never set people free from sin. It could never perfect anything. The law ultimately only brought us to a place of A revelation of the strength and the power of sin. But you know what the new covenant has done? It's brought us to a revelation of the power of righteousness. A righteousness that comes by grace through faith. That the Holy Spirit can impart to your heart such an ability to see beyond the lies, the labels, and the costumes that people bring before you. Even the own name that they carry and what that name represents. Because the the gospel of Jesus Christ elevates our eyes, lifts our eyes up above enemies round about us. Now to receive the heart of the Father that gives us the power to love our enemies. And look at what Micah says here in Micah chapter seven and verse six. He says, a man's enemies are the men of his own household. What did Jesus tell you to do with your enemies? Love your enemies. And isn't it true that sometimes People within your own family, your closest family members, sometimes become the hardest people to love. Why? Because sometimes they adopt a value system that's different than you. And so, what ends up happening here? A son treats his father contemptuously. This is Micah 7, verse 6. Daughter rises up against her mother, daughter in law rises up against her mother in law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. Listen, So what Jesus said was being brought on the earth. He says, look, you think I came to bring peace? I brought a sword. What, did, what was the sword? The sword was the law. That's exactly what happened with the law. He was revealing what was going to happen with the law system that these people were under. You continue to walk in this. You'll continue to live like this. Well, what did Jesus tell us to do? He says, love your enemies, even the enemies that are of your own household here. And love your enemies, do good to those who curse you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who despitefully use you, and do good to those who mistreat you. And then in John 17, he prays that we would be one. When he talks about loving God and loving each other, he's speaking of literally a life laid down out of a, a, a revelation of the love and the heart of God so that people will not be alienated from that love through our faith but that our faith, your faith in Christ will be the connecting point that brings people back into a revelation of their reconciled union with God. Look at what verse seven says here after Micah describes the tumult going on in families and and just what's happening within the family system. He says, as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me out into the light and I will see his righteousness. He goes on to say, then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where's the Lord your God? My eyes will look on her. At that time, she will be trampled down like mire of the streets. Now, when you look at this verse, you go, oh my goodness, this sounds like massive judgment against people who are walking against God. When the woman in John chapter 8, a woman who was caught into adultery was dragged before Jesus, They literally interrupted Jesus' teaching. And it was the spirit of religion that would interrupt the teaching of Jesus, interrupt the literal manifestation, the Word of God, to bring shame upon somebody. This is not what we do in the gospel. In the New Covenant, the terms of engagement have changed, they have radically changed. The spirit of religion still wants to come and interfere with the word of the Lord over your life to do justly, love, mercy, and walk humbly with your God in order to bring shame on somebody. Listen, we don't walk in pride. We also don't walk in shame. We walk humbly before God. And the way we walk before God will be the way we walk before people. Listen, I'm running out of time today, but this has been a difficult broadcast to do because I recognize there's so many different perspectives this week on this issue. What I'm just encouraging you to do is this. No matter where you are on this issue, walk humbly. Walk humbly. Walk sober and humbly. Walk before God and commune with God during this time. If at any time our rejoicing becomes arrogance, then our victory will be short-lived. This victory is meant for the purpose of saving lives. That's That's been the point all along, really. Been for the purpose of preserving life but this victory that saves lives must lead us to a revelation of of the father's heart through us toward an orphaned generation toward people who, who don't have a connection with God if this victory doesn't lead to a greater revelation of reconciled Union doesn't lead us to preach the gospel of the kingdom that people have been reconciled to God in Jesus Christ, and it further alienates those made in the image and likeness of God, walking in darkness, in the delusion of their own darkness. If we don't take that delusion and and take this opportunity, opportunity to turn that delusion into an opportunity for the spirit of adoption to work in people's hearts, we will have missed the opportunity of a lifetime. So, Father, I thank you for this incredible weekend that we have. And, Lord, I pray that we would walk humbly, God, that we would find new ways to bring the love of of the Father's heart to this world so that people would know that they're reconciled. Today, Lord, I pray that every person listening to this broadcast would do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with you, O God. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace and your goodness to us in our lives. Fill us with your love. Teach us how to love one another. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to the broadcast today. I want to encourage you to go to BillVanderbush.com. Check out the resources that are there. Jump on YouTube. Just Google Bill Vanderbush. You'll find all, all kinds of sermons and messages and whatnot. This week, we are out in Colorado Springs, Colorado, doing a conference called the Kingmakers Conference with a bunch of leaders from all over the nation. I'm so, so excited for the convergence that's happening this weekend. It's going to be an incredible, incredible time as we strengthen, build up leaders, their families, their marriages, and their lives. Send them out empowered to walk out their royal identity. And listen, uh, if you want to listen to this broadcast again, just go to vanderbushministries.com. And if you want to support this broadcast and this ministry, go to vanderbushministries.com and click on the Give button on the home screen. That's the best way to do it there. Or go to billvanderbush.com. There's also a Give screen there. Thank you so much for listening to the broadcast today. This is Bill Vanderbush along with Tracy and my mom and Doris in the office and everybody who's a part of this ministry and supports this ministry. We're so grateful for each and every one of you. Please keep us in your prayers as we continue to travel, that we would be uh, safe and that we give the word of the Lord in boldness, in courage, never compromising on the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is Bill Vanderbush from all of us here at Faith Mountain Ministries. Until next time, may the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.